Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, show us Christ. Lord, point us to your son, Jesus, all he's done for us. Lord, help that to capture our hearts and our minds and our hands. And Lord, we pray that through this word, you would encourage and challenge us to live for him alone. We pray for these things in Jesus' mighty and precious name, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I think the most talked about Christian in Australia today is Andrew Thorburn. Most of you have heard his name, but if you haven't, on Monday the 3rd of October, Andrew became the CEO of the Essendon Football Club. But in less than 24 hours, after pressure from public, because Andrew was also the chair of a board in a Melbourne church, City on a Hill, and the release of one-liners from sermons from the church from almost eight to ten years ago, uh, led to pressure from the club for him to choose either his role on the church board or his role as CEO at Essendon Football Club. So Andrew resigned from his role at the football club. And this led to a lot of discussion both inside the church and in our community. It was very heated in Melbourne last week when we went down. Uh, There's a lot of tension in the Christian community, especially in Melbourne. Uh, Many people are concerned anxious, some may even be embarrassed to say that they're a Christian right now. And amidst people's trust in the sovereignty of God in all this, I think people are asking the question, what's going to happen to the work of the gospel? What's going to happen to the work of the gospel? What's it going to look like for us in Australia moving forward? Well, we'll come back to that situation later, but as we continue our series in Philippians today, I think there's some similar feelings from what we just saw in the Andrew Thorburn and our situation to the situation in the Philippian church. Paul, uh, he's in jail in Rome, it's about 60 AD, and the Philippian church, uh, the ones who responded to Paul proclaiming the good news of life in Jesus almost 10 years back, Uh, They were saved by grace through faith in Christ. Uh, But they're finding themselves at this point concerned and anxious for Paul in jail, even embarrassed and ashamed that he is in jail. Not only that, but later in the letter, we see that the Philippians, they have their own trials with people opposing the gospel in their church too. And I think the Philippian church, they're asking the same question. What's going to happen to the work of the gospel? Well, Brandon helpfully opened the letter up last week, going through the introduction. I heard it, and he did go into his mini-lecture. Maybe he did more than a mini-lecture. But he picked out many different themes that uh, we'll see unpacked today and in the coming weeks. Uh, Today we get to the next part of the letter, following the greetings, uh, the introductions. Uh, After that's usually an update, a personal update on how he's going. And this stretches from verse 12 to verse 26. 
and we're tackling this chunk into sermons. And as we see Paul, he begins his update today. He answers the question of what's going to happen to the work of the gospel. He answers it for the Philippians and for us today. And his answer is this, the gospel advances. The gospel advances. As Paul tells the Philippians how he's going, he uses this to encourage and challenge them and us today about the work of the gospel, about partnership in the gospel, and how we as followers of Jesus are to live in times of trial and adversity, times where following Jesus may feel shameful, times where the work of the gospel seems to be hindered and stopped, times that we live in, I think, in our Australian society today. So it's great to have your Bibles open. It's a good practice since we're hearing from God's word ultimately and not me. And we'll start with verse 12, if you have a look. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Imagine if you had a friend like Paul in jail. You probably want to hear an update like, I've been treated well. The food is better than I thought. The chains hurt, but it's okay. We get to exercise for half an hour a day. And I might get an early release soon so I can continue doing my work of preaching Jesus. And that's what I think the Philippines probably were wanting to hear. They were anxious for his well-being. They were concerned for the work of the gospel. And they were also embarrassed, remember last week, by the fact that their spiritual hero, the guy that they looked up to, was in prison. But Paul, he responds emphatically. He says, this is what I want you to know. Not my well-being, not how long I'm going to be here, but that the gospel advances. That the good news of life in Jesus, which is what the word gospel means, it's spreading, it's advancing, it's making progress. And this progress is happening not just in spite of adversity, Actually, it's the adversity itself that's the means of the gospel moving forward. Paul's in jail, and it's the fact that Paul is in jail that allows the good news of Jesus to spread and advance. Verse 13 explains this. He says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You see, Paul's in a prison. He's in Rome. Uh, In these prisons, there were about 9,000 Roman guards uh, there. Uh, And Paul, he was handcuffed with a half a meter long chain. Uh, These handcuffed chains, they were never removed. And these chains were actually attached to Roman guards who would rotate between shifts during the day. And Paul, he didn't wail in his sorrows. He actually used this as an opportunity to share Jesus to every guard that he was attached to. The guards, they couldn't run away, so they had to listen to him. 
it was kind of like speed dating, a new person to share the gospel with every shift. So much that it was known throughout the whole imperial guard, all of these 9,000 Roman guards, that Paul was ultimately there, not because of Caesar, but because of and for the cause of Christ Jesus. We're not told who or how many accepted or rejected the gospel. We can guess that some did, many didn't. But in a sense, it doesn't matter because we're called to witness for Jesus and God does the rest. And that's what we see here. Paul witnessing to Jesus. Paul sees where he is as a place to proclaim Christ. He doesn't wait till he gets out of jail. He doesn't wait to get to the local church service in Rome or the evangelism course or the dinner at Rome event. He doesn't wait until the prison chapel service happens or he doesn't leave it to the chaplain. He doesn't wait until the opportunity suited him best. Paul's posture is this. Here I am. God's put me here. Let's share Jesus. I think as Paul shares this update, he's also teaching the Philippian believers as they work through their concern and their shame of Paul, as they work through their own adversity and trials to see the gospel advancing in whatever circumstance that they're in. And as we today read this, I think the question that flows onto us to consider is this. How can God use me where I am in proclaiming Jesus? How can God use me where I am in proclaiming Jesus? I think we've turned the act of witnessing to Jesus from part of our identity and lifestyle to something that we either do or don't do. We say things like, this is an evangelism event, and, uh, we, be- and, th- and we begin to think that things that aren't evangelism events, things that aren't inside that event, aren't times for evangelism. Or I'm going to do evangelism as if there's a time when we don't do evangelism. Or we leave that job to the evangelists, it's what they do, and I don't do that. But as followers of Jesus, people saved by Jesus to live for Jesus, we're always on mission. Witnessing to Jesus is part and parcel of living for Jesus. Evangelism, proclaiming Jesus, should be intertwined with how we live our lives. How can God use me where I am in proclaiming Jesus? Maybe for you it's a workplace a school, an office. Maybe it's the men's shed, a sports group, the local park, the cafe that you go to every week. Maybe like Paul, it's in adversity, in your health, in a family or relational breakdown, in your weakness or time of trial or whatever situation you're in. Remember that you're not where you are by accident. You are where you are by God's divine appointment. And God's put you there for the purposes of sharing Jesus. 
How can God use me where I am in proclaiming Jesus? Well, as we keep going, uh, we saw the gospel advance inside the prison walls, but that's not all because the good news of life in Jesus is also moving outside the prison walls as a result of Paul's witness. Have a look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the day of the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here Paul's talking about the church in Rome, uh, the folds of Jesus in the city where he's in jail. And the phrase, the brothers here, seems to suggest that it's not just the leaders in the Roman church, but the brothers, all of the believers in the church. They heard about Paul's witnessing efforts, and instead of being embarrassed or concerned or afraid because of Paul's imprisonment, they were emboldened by his example. They gained confidence to share Jesus also where they were at, outside the prison walls in Rome. And I think this is a picture of gospel partnership amongst believers. This is one reason why we need to live for Jesus and do it together in community, that we're better together as a body of Christ, and that's how God designed it to be. We see one person's boldness for Jesus And that overflows to others, influencing their hearts, turning fear into courage, turning hesitancy to readiness, shame to confidence, idleness to zeal. It could have easily gone the other way around. Paul in jail, think about it, leading to downcast followers of Jesus. But instead, we see Paul witnessing to Jesus in jail, And this leads to this overflow, this ripple effect of boldness and courage for Jesus. And this isn't just a poor thing. This ripple effect has been happening all throughout history. One bold witness for Jesus leads to a groundswell of boldness in the gospel. We see it in Martin Luther, who famously said here, I stand, who began that reformation tide in recapturing the beauty of the saving work of Jesus. We see it in many others like Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening in America, John Wesley and the Revival Movement, Charles Spurgeon and the English London Baptists. And most recently we've seen it with Billy Graham in a big way, with people, many people in our churches today saying that they became Christians through Billy Graham or through someone who was saved through Billy Graham and pastors and leaders who were challenged by the ministry of Billy Graham to be part of gospel work in a formal way. But it's not just the famous names. You can think of your own life, ordinary people that God has used to embolden your faith and your witness. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a mentor or leader. Maybe it's just someone else in the church that you see every week whose example has spurred you and others on to witness for Jesus with confidence. 
For me, the first one who comes up into my mind is my mum. She used to do private tutoring when I was growing up, when I was young, and I remember that she would be explicit in telling people about Jesus who loves them and died for them. She would hold out the offer of the gospel. She would even invite them to church. I would bring them to Sunday school and youth group. And she would tell me to pray for these students who were my school friends too. The second one who comes to mind for me right now is actually someone in our church who we've seen already this morning, and it's the Rindu. Won't say too much, but go talk to him. Ask the Rindu about his Uber rides. About, ask him about his chats to people at Subway or the conversations that he has with his clients at work. And whenever he shares those stories to me or whether in community group, it can be a bit overwhelming, but I can't walk away from Thurindu without a passion and a boldness to share Jesus. So as we see this ripple effect of the gospel advancing and think about for me, for you, for us, for our community, there's two questions I'd like for us to consider. And the first is this. How can God use me to influence other believers to be bold in proclaiming Jesus? I think we often wait for others. We often think that we aren't that person to influence others. We don't want to be that trailblazer, but if we're all saying and doing this, then no one is going to influence anyone. Maybe instead of waiting for others, instead of looking around, you give witnessing to Jesus a good, hot go. And as you obey Jesus in this way, as other believers see this, your example, as you share your stories and progress with them, as they pray for God's work in your efforts, they are likewise emboldened and challenged and encouraged to share Jesus with others. Maybe you're already doing this, proclaiming Jesus. Encourage someone about it. Tell them about what's been happening, the breakthroughs and the struggles and the failures. How can God use me to influence other believers to be bold in proclaiming Jesus? And the second question to consider here is this. Who is God using around me to grow my boldness in proclaiming Jesus? Who's God using around me to grow my boldness, your boldness in proclaiming Jesus? Find those people. Hang out with them. Talk to them. Let them rub onto you. Let them challenge and embolden you, whether it be the Thurindus or the other ordinary people who are giving it a good hot go with you. They're both equally powerful influences. We need to hear more stories of people witnessing to Jesus in the ordinary, day-to-day, -day, mundane rhythms of life. Stories of failure, stories of progress, all stories where the good news of Jesus is held out to others. Stories that also grow your boldness in sharing Jesus. Who is God using around you to grow your boldness 
in proclaiming Jesus. And as we think about partners in the gospel, I think when both of these questions are being worked out in our church community, people influencing others as they proclaim Jesus and people being influenced by others to proclaim Jesus, I think those working together, that's a powerful ripple effect as we seek to proclaim the good news of life in Jesus to our world. All involved in the work together, all sharing Jesus, all giving it a good hot go, all of us growing in confidence and growing confidence in others to do the same so that people might be saved from death to life by trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross. How can God use me to influence others to be bold in proclaiming Christ? And who is God using around you, around me, to grow your boldness in proclaiming Christ? Well, as we come back to the passage, uh, we've seen the gospel move outside the prison walls in verse 14. But as we come to verse 15, Paul goes into more detail into what it looks like. Let's have a look. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. You see, the church in Rome was a complex beast. Even in the midst of the early church, it wasn't one harmonious, happy group like we picture it. It's sort of like our church landscape today. There were false teachers and truth teachers, but within the orthodox and true teachers, there was also a mix of different groups here too. And here Paul outlines two different groups of leaders, teachers, and preachers. One group, the latter group in verse 16, they shared the good news of life in Jesus and they did it out of sheer goodwill for the spread of the word of God and with a relationship of love and affection for Paul. But the second group, the former group in verse 17, they shared that same good news of life in Jesus, but they did it out of envy and rivalry they were jealous of Paul. They proclaimed Jesus out of a selfish ambition, their own gain, not for the spread of the word of God, but to hurt Paul in prison, to rub it in against him. It's a question here of who is this group. The answer is we don't really know, but we can gather from reading this that they're actually preaching the right content about Jesus whilst Paul, he wouldn't be so generous to label them as preaching Christ. Uh, we read in Galatians that he calls out false teaching as another gospel. But we can also see here clearly that their motive is wrong. It's not primarily being done to save souls or to grow God's kingdom. It's for their own benefit, and it's for Paul's detriment. Some options to entertain. It could have been preachers who wanted to increase their ministry influence. 
and this was made easier with Paul out of the way. It could have been preachers who preached Christ but had other secondary beliefs that clashed with Paul's teaching, that these preachers were spreading even more while Paul was out of the way. It could have been preachers who felt threatened by Paul's ministry. If we look at Paul's letter to the Romans, it could have been something to do with the Jew and Gentile relations. But in the end, we don't really know. All we know is that they preach the truths of the gospel, the right content, with the wrong motives. Clearly, motives matter to Paul. He distinguishes between two groups, and there's a time and place to confront wrong motives, for leaders especially to reflect on their own motives. He's not sweeping motives under the rug. But as Paul outlines the advance of the gospel, as he updates and teaches and displays his example to the Philippians and us, Paul shows us what's most important as the gospel advances. He has a right to be angry about the situation, but that's not where he goes to in verse 18. He says this, What then? What do I do? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoiced. You see, for Paul, Christ being proclaimed is most important. It's not about Paul. It's not about his reputation or name or ministry. It's about Jesus. It's about his name being proclaimed. And as long as the truth of the gospel of Christ is proclaimed, not a false gospel, but the orthodox and scriptural account of the good news of life found in Jesus, whether in false motives or in truth, Paul's response in this conflict, in the adversities of being in jail and being afflicted by fellow gospel workers, is joy, rejoicing, deep-seated joy that Christ is being proclaimed. That saving message of Jesus Christ that offers life and salvation to sinners like you and me through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, paying the punishment for sin as he died and paving the way for eternal life as he rose from the grave. Proclaiming this message is what matters most to Paul. It mattered more than being thrown into prison, than others turning against him, than his good name being slandered and seeing Christ being proclaimed Paul responds in rejoicing in the Lord. So as we think about it for us, whether it be as we think about our witness or even more generally about our walk with Jesus, think about what matters most to you. Is it about me or is it about Jesus? That's really the question that Paul is forcing us to ask ourselves today. Is it about me, or is it about Jesus? When you see the work of the gospel, evangelism, church ministry, 
done in a way that's not exactly how you do it? Is it about me or is it about Jesus? When you're in adversity in a time of trial, is it about me or is it about Jesus? When you're in disagreement or conflict with someone else, is it about me or is it about Jesus? When you have an opportunity to witness for Jesus right in front of you, is it about me or is it about Jesus? When you see someone you may not get on with faithfully sharing Jesus, is it about me? Do you get envious or jealous or is it about Jesus? As we get involved in the church community, and we see others in their sinful selves, is it about me or is it about Jesus? As we think and talk about church, like the songs we sing and all the debates that happen in the church landscape or things that happen in the service or in our community at church, is it about me or is it about Jesus? As you live day by day, every decision, every action, is it about me or is it about him? In the late 1700s, uh, George Whitfield handed the reins of the Methodist movement to a fellow named John Wesley. And during that time of the transition, uh, there was a division, Whitfield or Wesley. And people warned George Whitfield that by handing the reins over, his name would be forgotten. Whitfield replied, and he says, my name, let the name of Whitfield perish, if only the name of Christ be glorified. Let my name perish, if only the name of Christ be glorified. Is it about me, or is it about Jesus? And as our lives become all about Jesus, we're to join Paul in rejoicing as Christ is glorified. Well, as we finish our time, uh, we remember we began with the Andrew Thorburn situation. And we asked the question, what's going to happen to the work of the gospel? Maybe we respond to this situation with concern, with fear, anxiety, or even shame and embarrassment. Well, God reminds us in today's passage that the gospel advances, that the good news of Jesus through servants like Paul and the Philippian church continues to spread. And this is meant to both encourage us and to challenge us in our life and witness. And as we live in a society with adversity in life and in following Jesus, God reminds us that what matters most is that Christ is proclaimed, that he is glorified and magnified. And while there are other matters at stake, matters like religious freedoms, discrimination, other things going on in our lives, things that we should care about, things that we should be concerned about, but let's make sure 
our priorities are God's priorities. That what matters more than even all those is Christ being proclaimed. We see here that the Apostle Paul, he doesn't let anything, not even himself, get in the way of the good news of life in Jesus advancing. A few days after the Andrew Thorburn situation happened, the lead pastor of City on a Hill Church, uh, the church that Andrew is part of, Guy Mason, uh, he was interviewed on Channel 7 Sunrise. Don't know if any of you guys saw that, but the interviewer, David Koch, he was rude, he was attacking, and Guy Mason, he could have fought back. He could have defended himself. He could have defended his church. He could have defended Andrew. He could have addressed religious discrimination. He could have even gone on attack against Kosh for his rudeness. But instead, he says these things. The Christian view is one of life, and it's one of love. That's what we stand for. That's what we want to proclaim, that Jesus is all about life, and it's all about love. What's at the heart about church? It's a passion to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Jesus offers life and love to all people, and that invitation goes to everybody. You see, he doesn't make it about himself or anyone or anything else. He makes it about Jesus. So let's rejoice because the gospel is advancing. People are hearing about Jesus. And let's partner with God and one another in the most important work, in what matters most, holding out Jesus to a dying world that needs to hear about life in him. Let's pray to this end. Heavenly Fathers, we reflect on your good gospel, your mercy lavished upon us in Christ Jesus, your grace displayed as Jesus died and rose again so that we might have life forever with you. Lord, help us to ask ourselves as we live for Jesus, is it about me or is it about Jesus? Please forgive us for the times that we make it about us. Help us to see your gospel advancing and to join with that task you've given us to proclaim him wherever you put us and wherever you place us. It's in Jesus, our life giver's name we pray. Amen.